0: Morning, everyone. Um, We're going to read from God's Word together now, Uh, and Nathan's going to be preaching from Deuteronomy chapters 5 and 6 this morning, but um, I'm only going to read verses 1 to 29 of chapter 5, and that's on page 184 of the Pew Bibles. Okay, so Deuteronomy 5, starting from verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath who misuses his name observe the sabbath day by keeping it holy as the lord your god has commanded you six days you shall labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a sabbath to the lord your god on it you shall not do any work neither you nor your son or daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your ox your donkey or any of your animals nor the alien within your gates so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commandments, the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me. And you said, The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty and we've heard his voice from the fire. Today we've seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all that the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever.
1: very much joe morning everybody please do um, keep that passage open and on the inside of your notice sheet there's a there's a uh, brief outline uh, that will help you to to take notes or to follow along we're going to begin though by playing uh, a word association game so what i'm going to do is i'm going to say a word and then i want you just to turn to your neighbor and say the first thing that comes into your head you ready you can play this okay chocolate Okay, ready for the next one? Oh no, I've said chocolate and you're off. You're off. Ready? Summer. Number three is up. Ready? Next one? Next one? Settle down. School. (laughs) Yes. Inarticulate noises are also allowed. Fourth one. Football. <laughs> That's the first one I heard. Okay. Last one. Last one here. This one's a bit different. Uh, don't say anything to your neighbor. I don't want you to sort of articulate this. Just, just answer this next one in your head. Law. What's your reaction to hearing the word law? What's your reaction to hearing laws? What was your reaction to the Ten Commandments that Joe just read out? There's all sorts of reactions, I think that we might have in this room, or we might have in our hearts, we could be thinking, oh, this is a bit depressing. I'm pretty sure I've broken one or two or three or four of these this week. God must just hate me. I'm pretty sure I shouldn't be here. Or we could be thinking, now, I wonder if what I did yesterday technically broke the fifth commandment or not, or whether I got away with it just about. Or we could be thinking, well, this is a bit old-fashioned, isn't it? I'm glad we don't have anything like this anymore. Or we could be thinking, oh yeah, Ten Commandments, yeah, I know these, and we just sort of glazed over as they were read. Well, this morning, as we take a close look at these two chapters, Deuteronomy 5 and 6, we're going to take another look at the law of God. We're going to see that all of those reactions, although understandable, miss the point of what this law is about. If we understand this law properly, my uh, contention this morning is that we will see more clearly the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus to us, and whether you are a follower of Jesus or not yet one this morning, I hope and pray and expect these words are going to do us much good. So let's dive in, uh, and let's first of all see the goodness of the law, the goodness of the law. Last week in Deuteronomy 4, we saw the privilege of listening to a speaking God. God said to his people through Moses that if they were to walk in his ways, If they were to obey his law, they would enter the land and they would live long and wise lives. And in chapter 5, Moses moves on from reminding them of, of the purpose of the law to the content of the law, starting with the Ten Commandments, the words that God himself wrote down on stone tablets, and which were the foundation and cornerstone of the whole law of Moses. These Ten Commandments were initially given in Exodus chapter 20, and Moses is rehearsing them here. And throughout Deuteronomy, we've started seeing it already, Moses holds up this law as being very, very good indeed. So let's look at these Ten Commandments through that lens. Let's see the goodness of this law by asking a question, what would a society look like that fully obeyed this law? What would a society look like that fully obeyed the Ten Commandments? Let's think about that as we read them together. Uh, Read with me again from verse 6 of chapter 5. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. I think we can see that all three of these first commandments are about idolatry. The first commandment tells the Israelites that they are not to worship any other gods apart from Yahweh, the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. There is to be only one object of worship, God himself. The second commandment forbids the people from making images of anything in creation to, to use in their worship, whether that's worship of God or worship of any other gods. There is only to be one means of worship, which is listening to God's word. We saw that last week, didn't we? And the third commandment in verse 11, although we often apply it to blasphemy, at using God's name as a swear word, it is a lot broader than that. A literal translation of verse 11 reads, you shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, God's name, to a false thing. In other words, the people were not to associate the name of God with something false or vain or worthless or untrue. Now, there's there's lots of ways we could do that, aren't there? We could use God's name as a swear word. Or we could say that we are worshipping Yahweh, that we are God's people, and yet believe and teach lies about God. We could subtly alter our teaching so that God is more understandable, or more controllable, or less demanding, or less controversial to our age. Or we could say that we're following God and sort of take the name of God for ourselves, but live in such a way that denies him. That might not look like idolatry, but in attaching God's name to something false to something worthless, something untrue, we are remaking him in our own image. We are, we're making a Yahweh-shaped idol, really. And that will not do either. So here's these first three commandments. There's to be only one object of worship, God himself, only one means of worship, the word of God, and only one way of worship, obeying God as he has revealed himself, not as he would like, we would like him to be. Now here's the question, why is that good? Why are these commands good news that would mean life and wisdom to someone who fully obeyed them? Well, we saw last week, didn't we, how awful idolatry is. It's not just arbitrarily bad, something God has just decided not to like. No, it's actually objectively bad for us. When we bind ourselves to follow things that are creatures of this world... When we transfer our affection and devotion and attention and trust away from God to something made in our own image or in the image of something else in this creation, we end up exhausted, dissatisfied, unfulfilled, cut off from relationship with the God of life under his judgment. It ruins us. It causes us to walk in foolish ways and to lead others to do the same. That's probably, I think, the best explanation of that statement in verse 9, that God will punish the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We must be very clear about this. God is not saying that he is going to punish innocent people. He's not saying that a sinful great-grandfather condemns his innocent offspring for four generations, In fact, in Deuteronomy itself, in Deuteronomy 24 verse 16, God says that an innocent son must not be punished for a guilty father, and vice versa. And actually, in the story of Israel, we've already seen that happen. Remember that first generation of Israelites went badly astray and worshipped the golden calf and refused to obey God, and they were punished. But here's the second generation, here alive to this day. So what's going on? If, if, if it's not saying that God is going to punish innocent people for their guilty forefathers, what is going on? Well, remember that God's method of judgment in Deuteronomy has been to hand people over to the consequences of their idolatry. If people turn from God to idols, they have decided that they hate God and they will more than likely teach and train their children to do the same. Instead of teaching their children to obey the Lord, as Moses tells his people to do, and as Aaron and Andrew were helping us think about earlier, they will do the opposite. Notice that in verse 9, it's not just the first generation that hates God, it's three or four generations of people that hate God. And so God, in his judgment, is handing people over to the consequences of their idolatry, even if that means... That whole generations will grow up not loving God and putting themselves under His just judgment by following in the idolatry of their fathers. And so, this is what this law is about. If people obeyed this law, they would be protected from that judgment and they would be kept close to the God who offers powerful, saving grace. Do you see that picture of God in these verses? He is, verse 6, the God who graciously saved his people from slavery to Egypt, in Egypt. He is, in verse 10, the God whose grace will utterly overwhelm judgment. Look at that uh, with me. Verse 10, in verse 9, he says three or four generations of Israelites might become idolaters and suffer for it. But verse 10, his intent is to show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments We might be thinking, where's he going to get a thousand generations of people who love him from? Hold your horses, we'll get there. But here is the point. God is a God whose mercy and grace is everlasting, whose grace will overwhelm judgment. And so these laws are designed to help people stay close to that God if they obeyed them. These are good laws. These would be good for people if we obeyed them. What about the fourth commandment, the Sabbath law? Uh, Look at it with me, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son and daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. This is the only law, the only part of the Ten Commandments, which is substantially different from what we read in Exodus 20. You can compare that in your own time. Uh, there's 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 a big change, really. In Exodus, the Sabbath law is motivated by the pattern of creation, so Moses says in Exodus, God made the world in six days, in the seventh day he rested, and so you should do that too. That pattern of God is a good and healthy thing for the Israelites to imitate. It's good for them to have a day off every week. It's good for them to rest. To rest, in fact, is to be like God. Well, here in Deuteronomy, the Sabbath law is not motivated by the pattern of creation, but by redemption, by the fact that they were brought out of Egypt, God brought them out of a situation where they were forced to work every day. No annual leave for slaves in Egypt. And they were forced to work every day and they were brought into the rest and the comfort and the joy of the promised land. And so the emphasis here, did you notice, was not about them having rest themselves, but giving rest to others. You see, that the whole point of this is to give your servant a day off, Right? They know what it's like to be forced to work and to never rest. And so they must show compassion on those who work for them and give them rest too. In Exodus, we learned that to rest is to be like God. In Deuteronomy, we learned that to give rest is to be like God. So this is a good law because it helps them be like the good God. Fifth Commandment, verse 16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, we can tell this is a good law. This one's easy because it has a good result. It will go well with you. There's something, children, for you to learn. It'll do you good to honor your parents, something for all of us to learn, actually. Again, remember what we've been seeing. It's not that honoring your parents is sort of arbitrary and it's a bit of a pain, but it's the kind of thing God likes, and he'll reward you if you do it, so he might as well tidy our room, I guess. No, honoring parents is baked into the very structure of creation. When God made the world, the first thing he made was a family, and he designed societies to flourish when they are built around strong and healthy families, where children honour their parents and obey them and consider them and respect them and perhaps care for them later on. Healthy societies are built around healthy family relationships. And if we want evidence for that, look at our society in the West, where we don't. We've spent decades trying to convince ourselves that the best way to live is to all do our own thing, to choose our own adventure, to do what feels right to you, and to not let authority figures like your parents get in your way. Watch... Any film, basically, and see how the thing is. You've got to find your, so, your individual self-expression, and, and if your parents are stifling you, you need to get out and do your own thing. And so every generation abandons the teaching of the last and tries to redesign morality from scratch. The only constant we have is change. Every generation is expected to rebuke and teach their parents, as a, a book that my daughter was given encouraged her to do. I'll tell you about that later. Um, to tear up the old rules and start again. What does that lead to? It leads to fractured lives, moral confusion, generations being at war with one another, institutions that have safeguarded our nation's health falling to pieces. This is not a recipe for a long-lived society. But living in line with the grain of creation, honouring parents, respecting families, this this is a good way to live. It's the way we're designed to live. It's a way that, usually speaking, works. See that in the 6th to ninth commandments, verse 17. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. Now notice these are not really explained or motivated because frankly they don't need to be. This is just straightforward respect for the created order that God designed in the beginning. Respect those made in God's image by not killing them. No matter how much they annoy you, no matter how useless they seem to society, no matter whether they're in the womb or out of it, they are made in God's image and must be treated with dignity and respect and love. If you should not commit adultery, that means respect the institution of marriage, that covenant relationship between one man and one woman that God designed by not breaking apart what God has joined together. Respect people's property, don't steal, allow them the means to look after themselves and live well. Don't, don't lie, respect truth, and don't try to mislead or deceive people. It's just, these are just good, aren't they? By the way, that doesn't mean it's always straightforward to obey these, or there might not be difficult judgment calls to make, things like that. There's, there's a lot more to say about biblical ethics, and we've got a lot of clarity about how to apply and obey these laws from the rest of, the, rest of Deuteronomy and the wisdom literature and the whole New Testament but the point is this at their core, these are good laws based on the good design of a good God. And God's law even wants us to do us good right down to our very hearts. Look at Deuteronomy 5, verse 21 You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You see, as well as protecting people's marriages and other people's property, this law, if obeyed, would guard the people's hearts and their motivations and their desires. It urges contentment with the things that we have, thankfulness and appreciation, rather than the the bitter, twisting envy of other people's stuff that would eat us up inside. And so, imagine with me a society that was built along these lines, here are the beginnings of true wisdom, conformity to the character of a gracious God, living within the crane of creation, with the creation design, with healthy patterns of work and rest, marked by compassion and respect for others, with love for our neighbor, even down to people with contented hearts that are really happy for other people when they succeed, rather than really envious. But that 10th commandment particularly shows us a bigger picture. This is more than just conformity with an external law. What is this law about? What is it aiming for? It shows us the goal of the law, which is a people with transformed hearts. Let's think about the goal of the law. We see that in chapter uh, six, verse 4 and 5, which we could just sing, but we'll read it. 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, this is the famous foundation statement of Israel's creed. It's now called, if you ask a Jewish person about this, they would say this is called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for here. And if you ask a Jewish person who takes their faith seriously what their religion is all about, they'll more than likely quote this verse to you. Jesus called verse 5 the most important commandment of the whole law. The summary, along with loving your neighbor, of everything that God wanted for his people. These two verses tell the Israelites, in summary, what they need to know about God and how they should rightly respond to him. So what do they need to know about God? They need to know that he is one. Now what does that mean? Well, it means a few things, I think. It means that he is the only God, there are no other gods, he is God alone. It clearly means that. It means also means there is a sort of perfection to his being, I think, that he is one, he is not divided, he's not changeable, he's not conflicted, he is consistent and pure and perfect. But I think the most important thing this teaches the Israelites is that God must be the only one for them. If we were to put it in modern romantic terms, we would say that he is the one. He is the only God, the only creator, the only saviour. And that means he must be the only God for them. The one who demands their exclusive loyalty and worship and obedience. And we can see that in what they're told to do in response, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Do you see what the response must be? It must be love wholehearted love, devoted love, whole being love towards him, all heart, all soul, all strength. But we have to keep asking questions in this passage, I think, because what does, what does love mean in this context? How should the Israelites love their gods? I love lots of things. I love cricket, I love chocolate, I love my wife, I love the English countryside, and, and all those loves are very different, and if I get them confused, I'll live strangely. Um <laughs> How should the Israelites love their gods? Well, We're told that they should love him with all their heart and all their soul and all their strength. That pretty much covers everything, doesn't it? That covers every aspect of human life, every faculty of our being. In the Bible, our heart is the center of our whole being. It encompasses our mind, our understanding, our affections, our emotions, our will, and our decisions And all of those things, Moses says, are to be trained upon the Lord our God, the one God. What about the soul? The soul in the Bible is about our desires, our longings. All of those are to be for him. And all of those things must be done with the utmost effort and felt with the utmost urgency, with all of our strength. So what would it look like to do that? What would it mean to to love God with all our heart and all your soul, all your strength? Well, Moses spells it out for the people in the rest of this chapter, in chapter 6. In this chapter, we're going to skim it really, but it looks like two big things to love the Lord our God. It looks like fear and obedience. Look at 6, verse 1 and 2. These are the commands and decrees and laws the Lord our God directed me to teach you, to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. The idea comes up again and again in the chapter, fear linked to obedience. So verse 13, look at that with me. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Or verse 24, the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees decrees, and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. Two things, fear and obedience. What what does that mean? What is fear? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, fear in this case means a a respect and a reverence and a care and a concern. I think that's what's meant by fear. It's the kind of fear, I think, uh, similar to the kind of fear that you get when you are handed a newborn baby you have been handed a newborn baby that isn't yours. Maybe that is yours. You, you take extra care, don't you? You give it all your attention because you fear dropping it or harming it. It's precisely because you love the thing, the person. Precisely because you love the person that you fear doing anything that will hurt it. The analogy isn't perfect. The Lord is, is not a baby. But there is such a respect and reverence and love for God that it translates into a horror of doing anything that would offend him. And therefore, obedience to his commands. It's not so much fear of what he might do to us if we disobey, although that's there, but being fearful of disobedience itself. It's the difference between saying, well, I won't cheat on my wife because I'm afraid she'll find out and break my legs, and saying, I won't cheat on my wife because I'm afraid it'll hurt her. Do you see the difference? The first one might just come for love of myself. I don't want to cheat on my my wife because I'm I'm afraid that things will go bad for me. That's love of self. The second thing would come from love of my wife. I love her so much that I don't want to hurt her, and therefore I'm fearful of doing anything that would hurt her. So this is what I think love looks like for the Israelites, or love should look like for the Israelites, to be so devoted to God with all our being, all their being, that they would hate to do anything they'd be fearful of doing anything that would hurt him and therefore they would obey all his commandments and this loving fearful obedience is called in verse 25 righteousness look at 6 verse 25 if we are careful to obey all his law all this law before the lord our god as he's commanded us that will be our righteousness now that that, that is this is the right way to treat god This is just the right thing to do. This is the right response to him. This is the right thing to do when brought into covenant with the one God, the only creator, the only saviour. The right thing to do is to love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and to therefore fear and therefore obey. And so no wonder then that this people were particularly urged to teach these words to the next generation in verse seven. To surround themselves with the commands and the words of God in their homes, on their clothes, verse 8, symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on your doors, graffiti them all over your house, and to rehearse the story of God's grace to the next generation. That's what it says in verse 20 to 25. When the children ask the fathers, why have we got all these laws? And they explain to them what's happened to Egypt and explain to them how it would be so good to obey these laws. The point of all this, the point of filling their homes and their minds and their children's minds and their clothes even with the word of God is so that verse six, look at six, verse six. These commandments that I give you to today are to be on your hearts. Remember, God is looking for whole hearted devotion, not just outward lip service in conformity to a law. This is the goal not only of the law, but of the whole of creation. This was the design at the very beginning. God is looking for a people in his image, who imitate his character, who walk wholeheartedly in his ways, who enjoy his grace, who enjoy his good creation design, and who therefore live in fearful, obedient love towards him with all of their heart and soul and strength. That is what righteousness looks like. This is what it means to worship God. And so we have a problem. Let's look at the problem of the law. And there are hints, even in these chapters, that there are, there's going to be a problem with this. Have a look at the very beginning of chapter five. We, we skipped it earlier. Back to chapter five, verse one. Moses summoned all Israel... "'And said, hear, O Israel, the decrees and the laws "'I declare in your hearing today. "'Learn them, be sure to follow them. "'The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. "'It was not with our fathers that the Lord made the covenant, "'but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. "'The Lord spoke to you face to face "'out of the fire on the mountain. "'At that time I stood between the Lord and you "'to declare to you the word of the Lord "'because you were afraid of the fire "'and did not go up the mountain.'" Now, there's a couple of very interesting details there. Did you spot a couple of things, as Joe read or as I just read just then, that made you go, hmm? Do you want to spot a couple of things like that? If you're reading the Bible and something makes you go, hmm, that's good. That means that you've read something you didn't expect. You need to think a little bit. Uh, It's time to learn. I've got at least two things there that make me go, hmm. First, in verse 3... Moses says that it was not with our fathers that, Lord, that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, all of us who are alive here today. Hmm. One of the things that we've seen is that the people with whom God originally made the covenant at Mount Horeb were exactly these guys' fathers, weren't they? It was that previous generation that was held accountable for breaking the covenant at Kadesh Barnea. And yet Moses is saying here, in another sense, it was made with us, with you, with the sons and daughters of those people. The covenant was made with the people of Israel, and here are the people of Israel. And so Moses says, you've got to understand, this is your covenant too. You don't get to wiggle out of it by saying, well, my dad signed it, but I had nothing to do with it. No, this is your covenant too. There is a continuity between that first generation and the second generation, they are the same people and they have the same covenant. But that should be a bit of a worry, I think, as readers of Deuteronomy. This new generation has done well so far. They've obeyed up to this point. But if Moses is saying, look, guys, you're basically the same people as your fathers and your mothers. If you're the same people as that old generation, that idolatrous, scared, rebellious, hard-hearted, their parents... That's a bit of a concern. Here's another thing that makes me go, hmm. Moses says in verse 4 that the Lord spoke to you face to face. Last week we saw the privilege of that intimate relationship with God, that he has come near in his word, that he is near when the Israelites pray. But as soon as Moses tells them that the Lord has spoken to them face to face, he immediately clarifies it and qualifies it in verse 5, doesn't he? At that time I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. So there is intimacy. It is true that the Lord spoke to them face to face, that he's come near in his word, but there is also immediately distance. They are separated from God by fire and by smoke and by Moses. And that tension between intimacy with God but also distance comes again. After Moses has repeated the Ten Commandments, He says uh, something very interesting in verse 22. Read verse 22 with me. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness, and he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me, and you said... The Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire as we have, and survived? Go near and listen to all the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. Hmm. The people say to Moses, it's great to hear God's word. What a privilege that we can hear God's word and live to tell the tale. Now please can it stop? Can you go and listen to God for us and can we please take a step back? We'll listen, we'll obey, but we're scared and we think we're going to die. Now what are we to make of that? Well, actually, God tells us what to make of that in verse 28. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I've heard that what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. God says, Yeah, well, what they've said is right. They should listen and obey, but they shouldn't come near. They should stay at a distance. Actually, this people should be scared, they should be afraid because they are exactly the same people as the previous generation. Just flip forward a page or two to chapter nine, verse seven. We'll look at this next week a little bit, but this is Moses speaking to this second generation that was not held responsible for their parents' disobedience at Kadesh Barnea, that so far have been doing okay, as far as we can tell. Chapter 9, verse 7. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Meet the new generation, same as the old generation. Same as every generation. Rebellious, stubborn, hard-hearted, disobedient. Disobedient. Although they have not sinned in precisely the same ways as their old generation, God, Moses, sees into their hearts and says, well, you're just the same, aren't you? <laughs> you're just the same. The same as everybody. Rebellious, stubborn, hard-hearted, disobedient. And so turn back to chapter, chapter 5 and see the real paradox in what God says next in verse 29. He's just said, yep, they're right to say that. They're right to say that they should go back home to their tents and let, you, let Moses speak to me. But look at verse 29, see what he says. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Do you see the sense of lament in those verses, in those words? You see, right now, the people are doing something right, but there's something badly wrong as well. You see, the people are scared of God's presence, and so we could say there is something of the fear of the Lord in their hearts, but God, in verse 29, is lamenting that it's not the kind of fear that will lead to obedience. He wants a people who's not just scared of him, but a people who love him, a people whose fear leads to joyful, willing, obedient love. There's a real paradox here, a tension. We've seen a lot of tension in Deuteronomy already. Here's another bit of tension If the people really feared the Lord from their heart, they wouldn't need to be so scared of him. Do you see that? If they had the fear of the Lord in their hearts, which meant that they truly loved him and obeyed him and always kept his commandments from the very heart with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, they wouldn't need for him to beg him to stop speaking. They wouldn't need to flee the consuming fire of his judgment. And yet that is not what God is going to get from this people. You see, here is the problem of the law. What this covenant desires, what this law is aiming at, are people who love and fear and obey the Lord from their very hearts. It cannot achieve. The law of God cannot actually change the hearts of rebellious people. It cannot create what it commands. It commands wholehearted love and obedience, but it can't make people do that. And so that is why the New Testament writers, looking back on this law can be so negative about it. We've seen how good it is. We've seen what a noble and glorious goal it has. But the apostles in the New Testament say some extraordinary things about it. Paul in Romans 8 verse 2 calls it the law of sin and death. In 2 Corinthians 3, he calls the old covenant the letter that kills and the ministry of death. In Galatians 3, we read that we are held captive under the law, And imprisoned. How can Paul and the other apostles say things like that? Is it because they thought this was a bad law? Well, no, exactly the opposite. It's because the law is so good that it's so deadly to us. If it were a bad law, we might be excused our disobedience. If the law is bad, then disobeying it is good, right? If it's an arbitrary law, some sort of random rules, well, we'd still be wrong to break it because God gave it. But it would be unreasonable to demand that because of it we should love God if it's just arbitrary and random. But it's such a good law. It reveals a gracious God and a well-ordered creation and calls people to compassion and love for their neighbor and care and joy and long life. And therefore it makes our sin and our disobedience all the more irrational all the more shameful, all the more guilty. It is the law of sin and death, not because following it leads to sin and death, but because following it would lead to obedience and life, and we don't follow it. The law kills, not because it's bad, but because it is good and we are bad. This law held us captive, not because the law is a mean kidnapper of innocent persons, but because we are criminals who deserve prison. Every generation, from every nation under the sun, whether they have this law or not, has fallen short of the goal of this law, fallen short of God's creation design, his perfect character, his loving compassion, and fallen short in our hearts. Hearts which are meant to be turned towards God in total devotion are totally devoted to other things instead And what the law does is throw a spotlight onto this darkness in our minds and souls and hearts and declares us to be not only sinners, but stubborn, willful, irrational, guilty sinners. The law which invites righteous people to fear God and walk with him in life and wisdom causes unrighteous people like us to be terrified and to run away from the consuming fire of God's judgment. That's the problem of the law but we now know about the fulfillment of the law. By the way, if you're thinking, oh, these Deuteronomy sermons are pretty similar, everything's terrible, but then the answer's Jesus, then yeah, pretty much. That's that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. That's our whole church, basically. Uh, That's the whole Bible. The answer's Jesus. Consider this with me. Think about Jesus. What attitude does Jesus have towards God? By the way, if you if you don't feel like you can answer that question, because you don't know much about Jesus, perhaps you're new with us, if you're new to Christian things, welcome, by the way, if you're a guest. I hope you can stick around and chat later. But let me ask you, have you ever read one of the Gospels, one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life? If I haven't, they're on the welcome desk. Take, take some, read it. Please, I urge you to do that, because there you will learn what Jesus' attitude is towards God, and I think what you'll see will take your breath away. Here's a question. Did Jesus fear God? And so, yes, yes, he feared God. He showed exactly the kind of loving, wholehearted, devoted reverence for God that we read about in Deuteronomy 6. He, t- he said that obeying God was like food to him. He was so passionate about God's glory that his own family thought he'd lost his mind. He was so committed to the mission God had given him that when he set his face to go to Jerusalem and die on a cross, his disciples were amazed and hung back and didn't know what to make of it. Jesus was committed. He loved God with all his heart and soul and strength. Did Jesus fear God? Yes. Was Jesus afraid of God? Was he scared of him? Did Jesus beg to be away from God? Answer, no. Jesus had total unbroken intimacy with his father. He said in John 5, I and the father are one. God said of Jesus at his baptism, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. Even at his darkest hour before he faced the cross, he drew near to God in fervent prayer and in loving obedience. So what do we see when we look at Jesus? Well, here is a man with the law written on his heart. Someone who loves God and loves his neighbour. All the Ten Commandments, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, all the Ten Commandments are brought to perfection and fulfilment in him. Not only is Jesus not an idolater, he is someone who obeyed the law and loved God to its fullest extent. He kept Sabbath in a way which baffled the Pharisees because they didn't really understand what the Sabbath was about, but Jesus knew what Sabbath was about and so he obeyed it perfectly. And he said to people who were in slavery to sin, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is the fulfillment of the Sabbath law. The Sabbath law is about giving rest to people. Well, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to give sinners and guilty people rest. He honored his father and mother, even though they didn't understand him at all. Children, I don't know if you've ever thought about your parents. They just don't get it. They just know nothing, and they just don't understand me. We've all thought it about our parents. I'm sorry to tell you, children, that probably isn't true. Uh, Probably your parents know a lot better than you and they get you better than you think. But imagine this Jesus genuinely did know better than his parents, and they genuinely didn't understand him. But he obeyed them anyway. Imagine that a man who honored his father and mother. Not only did Jesus not murder, but he brought people back from the dead and restored their life. He treated everyone as an image-bearer of God, even those on the very margins of society. Not only did Jesus not commit adultery, but he always treated both men and women with utmost purity and held marriage in high honor. Not only did Jesus not steal, but he overturned the tables of those who did, bringing justice. He led tax collectors to repent and return everything they'd stolen from others. Not only did he not give false testimony, but he only ever and always spoke the truth even when it cost him his life. And not only did he not covet, but he was completely content with hardship, even the hardest obedience possible when he said to his father, not as I will as you will, I will willingly go to the cross. The fulfillment of the law is found in Jesus Christ. Here is a man with the law written on his heart, the only man who ever has done, has been but it doesn't end there. You see, Jesus could fulfill the law and end up being the only man in the new creation. It could just be him forever. He's the only one who deserves it, isn't he? He's the only one who deserves to be there by rights. But the relentless grace keeps on giving because Jesus in his life on earth met idolaters. He met Sabbath breakers. He met those who dishonored their parents. He met murderers and thieves and adulterers and liars and covetors, and he forgave them with all the authority of God's. Even as he died, he forgave the men who were murdering him. And he could do that because he died. He died facing the consuming fire of God's judgment so that he could stand between us and God, like Moses stood between God and the Israelites, but infinitely better. Because for those who belong to Jesus, the fire of judgment is burned out. God's wrath is completely satisfied, and so we can draw near. And not only that, there's more. But wait, there's more. Not only does he forgive those who break the law, he now leads his people in fulfilling the law by writing it on our hearts. This was the promise the prophets of the Old Testament made and that fulfillment is now declared by the apostles of the New Testament. Romans 8 verse 1 to 4 on the screen. Paul says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now, there's plenty more to say about how we as Christians actually sort of obey the law, the requirements for us as New Covenant Christians, how it's how it can be that we can walk in the Spirit and we're not under the law, how we can fulfill the Ten Commandments even though it's not our covenant. There's all sorts of stuff to say about that. We haven't got time today. Uh, Growth Group Central on uh, the Covenant is... Available, if you haven't listened to that, ask me for the recording. Or you could go back and listen to the sermons we did on Galatians a few years ago. That would probably help. But the general point is this. The goal of the law, that people would walk in God's good, compassionate, ordered ways with hearts that loved him, is met in Jesus. And he now invites us, rebellious, hard-hearted sinners that you all are, and I am too, to walk in God's ways once more through forgiveness, through the gift of his spirit. To enjoy the goodness of imitating him, of living within the good order of creation, of turning from empty idolatry to loving, fearful obedience of the living God. To be part of that thousand generations of people who love him and obey his commandments. And when you and I fail to do that, when we fail to love God and fear him, when we disobey him, when we turn away from him, if we are Jesus' people, he continues to pursue us with relentless grace. He guarantees by Jesus' obedience our entrance into the new creation and our long life in that good land. He has done it all. He's fulfilled the law in himself. He's taken the curse of the law on himself and he now invites us to start walking in fulfillment of the law for our own good and for God's glory. Now it might be that you've yet to take Jesus up on that offer? If that's you, please come and chat to me afterwards. But wherever you are with Jesus this morning, I'm going to pray now to say thank you for him and to commit ourselves to following him and walking in his ways. And if you want to make this your prayer too, uh, please say amen with me at the end. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are a good God, that your ways are perfect, your ways are just, that you are righteous, that when you call us to love you and fear you and obey you, you are calling us to to walk in good ways that would do us good. And Father, we're sorry that we are so quick to turn away from you, to ignore you, to disobey you, to think that we know best. Father, we acknowledge that none of us can of ourselves be what this law wants us to be, what you want us to be. That we cannot be the people with love in our hearts for you, with wholehearted obedience for you. We fall short in so many ways. And so we praise you and thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is everything that you wanted. He is truly your image, the one who loved you from the heart, the one who obeyed this law to the fullness of his being. And because of that, Father, thank you that he has met the righteous requirement of the law. Thank you that he has died to, consume, uh, to, to take up that consuming fire and burn it out so that we might walk in intimacy with you. And thank you that he teaches us in his word and by his spirit to walk in the fulfillment of the law, to love you, to love our neighbor. We pray that we will be people who rely on Jesus, who come to him and belong to him, and who walk in his ways all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.